Welcome everyone to another episode here of the Immigrants Journey podcast. Today we are talking to the lovely Cecilia Amabu, human rights activist with an inspirational story of perseverance, coming overcoming difficulties and acquiring triumphs. She currently works with NASC Immigrant and Refugee Rights Center based in Cork and she's here to share her path with us. Cecilia, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. That is really a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. My <laughs> pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born and how you eventually came to Ireland. Oh, wow. Okay. So like, you know, my name is Cecilia Amabo. I'm uh, originally from uh, Southern Cameroons. Today we call it Ambazonia. Uh, I was born in Bamenda and in a little village called Nkwen. My dad is from Bafut and my mom is from Kwen. But I literally grew up at uh, my phone Kwen in Bamenda. Um, I come from a family of uh, six. I have five uh, brothers. I'm the last child and the only female child. <laughs> so, but I do have uh, stepbrothers and sisters. I come from a polygamous home. It's a common practice in Africa where I come from. And um, yeah, I, I grew up with my parents, uh, my mom and my dad to an extend then my mom separated with my dad from my dad and she became a single mom and raised us all so I literally grew up with her for the first nine years or so and after which she passed on and <clears throat> my eldest brother uh, became the father the mother the elder brother and everything for us and that is where I went through my primary education. I went through my primary education in Quen, And um, unfortunately, I didn't go through secondary school. Uh, reason being that by that time, by the time I clocked the age of entering the uh, secondary school, my mom had passed on. And um, from anyone who knows how a polygamous home works, uh, the mom is actually the breadwinner for your own kids. You know, you take care of your own kids and the dad is there. He can support, but the mother take chunk, uh, a chunk of the responsibility. And once your mom is not there, uh, you can be rest assured that your, fi your future will be a little bit on the balance. So, yeah, so that is what happened. And I didn't go to secondary school at the age when I was supposed to. None of my elder brothers did because none of them actually had the means to but that uh, didn't stop uh, my oldest brother who who became the head of the family to make sure that we all at least went through our primary education and obtained the first school living certificate and so after that I stayed at home maybe literally doing nothing but just moving from one family home or one aunt to another with the hope that I might probably get sponsorship from one of them to go to secondary school, which I never had. And um, so I started off uh, 
doing a little bit of handworks. I tried becoming a tailor, a seamstress. I learned how to sew dresses. And I didn't go through with that because I really never liked it. I just did it because I needed to be occupied. My elder brother felt I was getting at an age where if I wasn't occupied doing something, I might be tempted to start I might start living a lifestyle that will not be acceptable by the family and the cultures of that time. And so I just did it for doing its sake, for my brother's sake, just to make him happy and to be an obedient child. So from there, I, I realized that amongst my peer group, most of my friends, I mean, most of them, if not all of them, were actually going to, sec- they were actually in school, enrolled in former school, in secondary schools. And it became a challenge for me to actually blend in because I, most of the time when we, because in Africa or where I come from, most of African countries will attest to this. We speak, we speak English, we speak our mother tongue, and then we speak the broken English, which is called the pidgin English. So when you are not an educated person, literally you have to speak the broken pidgin, the broken English, which is called the pidgin English. So that is the language that I was used to communicating with my friends. But when we are together, you find them speaking in English, in Queen's English. And I couldn't express myself in English because I really didn't go to school. I wasn't in school like they they were. And that was a challenge to me. And they used it to mock at me sometimes. And I really felt so... I felt so bad at that time. And I really felt a disappointment. And also it, it always brings back the memory of my mom because I knew if I if she were still to be alive, I would never have been in that situation. And most of my cousins, my dad's uh, elder brother had his, his, he was well, he was wealthy. His children were all in school. And so most of the children, they, they didn't even know how to speak uh, the broken English or the pidgin English that we were used to. So when you're communicating with them, it's it's really difficult to pass a message across or even to have a, a normal conversation, just like a normal conversation amongst brothers. You couldn't really be amongst them because they speak in English, then you have to be speaking in broken pigeon English or pigeon English. So it was really challenging for me and it became so embarrassing. And at the age when I was already grown and I knew men already. I I had a relationship. I remember I had a boyfriend who could not, I couldn't do anything. Uh, He really liked me, but there was another girl that was schooling with him. And that girl, each time she sees me, he would start speaking to that guy. Even though we speak the same uh, local dialect, she will never speak to that guy in the local dialect. She will keep speaking in English. That will provoke me because I couldn't speak and express myself in English. And I was like, this is not happening. I have to do something about it. And because of that uh, 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 provocation from that other girl, I had to end that relationship. I was like, okay, this is not my class. I just have to go where I will be accepted and where uh, I will be comfortable 
But along the line, I ask myself, where are you comfortable? And where do you really think you are accepted? Do you have to just keep going backward or you have to buckle up and try to improve yourself? So out of the many insults and my inability to really associate with my friends or really have proper conversations, meaningful conversations with my friends, I told myself, okay, Cecilia, enough of it. You have to go back to school and upscale yourself. So at that point, I, I, I had to sponsor myself through school at that point. I did a little bit of a, a sales job with and uh, uh, with a bar. That's where I raised my first money to start off my my educational journey. But when I traveled to meet one of my elder brothers, my stepbrother in Douala, he was also that type who would not even encourage you to go to school because he himself didn't go to school. But my cousin from my uh, uh, uncle was so good that he knew that there was something in me. He could really encourage me to uh, to bring it out. So he said, OK, look, the, the school term is already almost to an end. It's just about three weeks to the end of the school year. But that is OK. I think if you enroll within these three weeks, you get to, you know, you just get the basics, you you will have, you will put, uh, blend yourself, get the basic and you will take it from there. I said, okay, that is, I think that is, I should be able to do that. And that is how I went and enrolled myself in an evening school. It wasn't a regular school, like regular, regular school or a formal school. It was something called an evening school or adult education. Even though you have to teach the same curriculum like uh, in in formal schools, but you have to, it is extra work for the students who are attending that particular school because you have something that you could you have to study for seven years or eight years. They put it together in just for two years or three years, so it was extra work for everybody. But I was okay with that. I needed to just get myself out there to be able to express myself, to be able to you know to have conversations with people, not feel shy entering amongst my own peers or even feeling uncomfortable to visit my cousins or enter into a government office or even express myself, write my own name, do anything that has to do with a pen and a paper. Because at that point, you become so intimidated that you can't, even if you maybe you feel that you can speak it, you will not be able to do it because you just feel that you'll be judged. People will say, oh, what is that? What does she say? And all those type of things actually uh, are really, <clears throat> they can really destroy your, your, your morals and they can really destroy your ambition, your growth in any way. So that is how I got into that uh, secondary or adult education. And that first year I decided, okay, look, Douala is a very toxic town. Anybody that knows it knows it's not a very good place for any child to grow up and study. I told myself I will return back to Bamenda because the best of education is in the, uh, in Bamenda there. So I said, OK, I will go back home. I will focus and I will get this thing done with. And that is how I returned back to my brothers. They were like, we have people who have gone to school for 10 years. They are unable to obtain the ordinary level certificate. What makes you think you can come in one year and or two years, you will be able to obtain the certificate. I said, okay, and then watch me do it right in front of you. All I need for you is don't, 
overburden me with tasks at home. Just give me enough time to study and I will make it. And so that is how I, the first year, I went back to Bamenda enrolled at an evening school at uh, Sonak Street. <clears throat> uh, the first year and then the second year, I uh, my teacher saw that the first year was really good. And so they encouraged me during the second year to actually register for the national examination. And I, I was ready. I knew I was ready. So I registered because you could register up to 12 papers, I think, if I'm not forgetting. But I did register for 10. So I had seven out of those uh uh, then, then the next year, normally on a normal day, you have to go through seven years of school before you can write your uh, ordinary level. And that will be if you're really a smart student that never repeats a class or other stuff. So if you obtain your ordinary levels, you go through what we call uh, the lower seats. But I didn't go through the lower seat. I just went to the upper seat. That is the examination class for your advanced levels. And I went to that examination class. I wrote for my advanced levels and got uh got to have it i had it then and that was it so i literally spent three years in obtaining both my ordinary levels and advanced levels and the next year i made contacts with my uh godfather because i'm i'm from then i was from a catholic background i had you you know what a godfather godmother is. So my godfather was in the U.S. at that time. So I made contact with him. He was so impressed to know that after all these years, I decided to go back to school and I was able to pull through this. And so he said, okay, look, if you think you really want to go to school, I want to encourage you that I will support you do it. So, and that is how we, we made plans for me to go into the university. So I went to the university and I studied law at the University of Yaoundé too. And yeah, just like that, I graduated with a BA and then I went for that, did a matrix and I graduated as well from there. And from there, okay, I I was really into human rights. I really love. And um, so while after I completed my studies, you know, it's very difficult to get a job in Cameroon if you don't have a godfather, you don't have, you know, somebody like who recommend you or somebody that knows somebody in the government that knows another person that knows, you know, all the no, no, no in, 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 uh, in the various offices. So I, I started off by doing an internship with the National Commissions on Human Rights and Freedom. It was a project run by uh, a Unifam and UNDP, the U, uh, U, uh, UN Women uh, Forum, and also the UNDP, of course, the development one, on women political rights in Cameroon. So I was at the commission at that point, and they needed representatives to go back to different parts of the selected four regions in Cameroon for them to go there. And I was selected to go back to my own uh, uh, region at that time. And I went there as a coordinator of that project for data collection for women's civil and political rights. And that is how the interest continued to grow. So after the uh, internship at the National Commission on Human Rights and Freedom, I had there was uh, there's somebody from my uh, from my community that works in Ghana and has this big organization that he, he uh, they promote human rights. There were women and children, and there was a vacancy in that organization. So I contacted and applied. When I applied, 
we were about four of us that applied from back home, but I mean, I, I stood out and I was uh, given an opportunity to serve there as a project officer. And that is my journey from Cameroon to Ghana. So that is how I left Cameroon in 2000. And, uh, I think in 2012, almost the end of 2012, and then I went to Ghana. Uh, from Ghana, I stayed there. I worked with that organization for the first two years or so, three, two and a half years to three years. And then I, I, I wasn't really, I felt I wasn't doing well in the organization and the pay was horrible. It was horrendous. So it was so terrible. Uh, you will not believe how much, I don't want to mention the amount here because it's so ridiculous. And I got another opportunity with a Dutch organization that was uh, just came into Ghana at that point. So uh, they were looking for uh, employees and I applied as a project monitoring officer for their program. And I was given that opportunity. So then they, at least the pay was good. It was when I was with the Dutch organization. At that time, I, I still have because the Pan-African organization for uh, uh protection of uh, violence against women and children was literally working on human rights promotion and protection. We worked in different communities in Ghana and it was in Ghana that I saw so much and it really breaks my heart. What I saw myself in a lot of the girls that I saw in the Northern part of Ghana, Mine was just it's not because uh, their parents were not there to sponsor them, but because of some harmful traditional practices, because it is a culture for them not to allow their girls to go to school because they feel that if a girl child goes to school is the property of the husband and every proceed that the girl makes, it goes into the husband and the husband's family. And because of that, they don't sponsor their female children in school. I saw myself in a lot of them. And I decided, I said, no, this is something we should really advocate against. And while I had, while I was with uh, IWAD Ghana as a monitoring, a project monitoring officer for IWAD Ghana, I had, I saw this opportunity uh, for a master's program, a Euro, uh, European Union sponsorship for a human rights program in in Italy, human rights and democratization, a master's program. It was a very intriguing program. And I said, okay, why not give it a try? After all, this is what you've always wanted. You really wanted to upscale yourself. You've always wanted to go deep into the human rights uh, field. So why not give it a shot? And that is how I applied for that program. And uh, like I always say, God will have it. I, I was given a place. I was given a place out of the so many people that applied in Africa. It's not like I'm the most brilliant or I was just favored. I want to put it that way. I was just favored. And I was the only black person amongst the 90 students or the only African amongst the 90 students that uh, uh, were in that program. So that is how I moved from Ghana in 2016 to Italy, where I started that uh, program uh, at the university center. A European Inter-University Center for Human Rights and Democratization based in Lido, Venice, in Italy. And so from there, uh, we went to Kosovo. Uh, we had a field trip in Kosovo for like two weeks, three weeks, and just for 
to uh, evaluate the human rights uh, position in Kosovo after its independence and all that stuff. And then back in Venice. And the program is such that <clears throat> The program is such that uh, it has 41 other branches across Europe, meaning other universities in Europe host the same program, but they normally do that during the second semester. So University College Dublin is actually one of the 41 universities that host the human rights program. And so it happened that I was sent to Dublin, and that is how I found myself in Dublin. Oh my God, that is such a story, <laughs> Cecilia. Wow. <laughs> that is quite the journey. Like you have quite a journey. You yeah. have so many lifetimes in one short lifetime. <laughs> it's really impressive. My God. I like so much of your story in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways mirrors my own. Because I also had to leave school when I was 14 for different reasons than yourself. And yeah. I went back to school, do a three-year program in one year and just do different things. And like I started my university in my mid-30s. So like it took me such a long time to yeah. get back into school. So I completely identify with your experience of persevering wow. and not giving up, even <laughs> doing things later in life. It's never too late, is it? It's never too late indeed. It's never too late. I went to true adult education and imagine at my age, I entered the university in 2006. Mm. 2006 at my age, I was really old. So. <laughs> but see, you're never too old. Once you're willing to do it, you can do it. Yeah. And like, that's the same thought process that I had. I'm like, well, if I don't do it now, what am I going to be doing in five years? I'm yeah. going to be doing the same thing. I'm going to be having the same struggles. I'm going to have the same limitations. And that's what education offers you. Opportunities, yeah. networking, you become aware of things you didn't be, you didn't know previously. So it's really, it can be really useful. It's not for everybody. I do grant yeah. it's not for everybody, but yeah. it's definitely for some of us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So <laughs> take us back a little bit about when you were still in your culture. What are some of the things there that you love and that you miss? Oh, our cultural values. I still cry today because uh, I kind of feel everything has been modernized and uh, we've lost the sense of culture or the sense of communalism. In my community, we, we've always had this sense of communal life where one person's uh, problem is another person's problem. It's everybody's problem. And we grew up in such a way that you feel free to walk around in your community without fearing anything, without being scared of being attacked or anything because everybody knows everybody. And it's the responsibility of every mother in the community to, to take care of every child on the street. You know, uh, I will just bring you back to the that in Europe, when I first came to Europe in Italy, I saw parents walking the street with their children smoking. You know, a father lit a cigarette for his son a mom does the same thing for his for her daughter, and they are all walking and just smoking. And 
it was so scary when I saw that, not because I don't know that uh, women smoke or that children, uh, some teenage kids, they smoke, but because I saw a whole family practicing the same thing, which in an African culture, in where a culture where I come from, it's considered a taboo. It's considered a taboo for, for you. I remember one of my older brothers used to smoke, but he would never smoke it at the site of my mom or the site of any mother in the community. Because if a mother sees you smoking, you are you are dead. She is going to beat you up. She doesn't care if you are her own uh, biological child or not, because every child in the community is the child of everybody. Then to, to think of it that a girl, you see a girl smoking on the street. No, it's unheard of and it's unseen. In my culture, girls, those girls who really think that they have to smoke, those are the ones that will go to the nightclub and they smoke it there and finish it there and go back home. You can't smoke to the view of your parents. If a mom sees a girl smoking, um, a woman sees a girl smoking on the street, she can literally take off her shoe and beat the hell out of you. And that is the culture that we had. The moral upbringing was impeccable, but today, you see young children. I remember one of my older brother's daughter called me. And when I was talking to her, she like, oh, Auntie Eska, say Eska. I'm like, am I the one you're saying Eska to? She's like, oh, no, mom, I'm sorry. But that would not happen in those days. You cannot hear children saying those kind of things to an elderly person. And you see our culture, we had this aspect of our parents sitting us down and telling us the stories of how the village came into existence because it was definitely one person from somewhere that migrated from somewhere and then started up the community and then the family started growing and growing and growing and it became a village. You will hear our parents tell us these stories, how they first originated from this part of uh, uh, the country and that is how they moved from the Bantu to this area and finally settled in this land how they had to fight battles, uh, tribal wars, to conquer the territories of this village where we are now. And also you will hear them talk about the beauty, the sit you down on that. The beauty of it all is the aspect of sitting down under trees, under the moonlight, in the open air, you see Parents sit and then children will sit around them. Then they tell stories, the scramble of Africa, how the white came into Africa, how they dragged their parents uh, into America and Europe. They give you all those details and you feel your, you feel goose pimples all over your body, but it gives you that sense of belonging. Our parents, you know, it builds that communal life and you want to tell these stories to your children when you grow up. You want your children to also have a feeling, that sense of, uh, uh, that, that feeling of sitting with parents and discussing these things. But development has destroyed all of this. Then modernization has destroyed all of this. Parents no longer sit and talk, uh, tell their children's stories. Parents, we now sit and watch TV. We now, uh, uh, people now go out to nightclubs and they no longer gather in uh, village arenas and 
dance and perform in the night because there were aspects where you gather yourselves in the village arenas, you perform cultural dance, the ladies would dance, the men would dance, they play tribal songs in the night or at noon or in the in the afternoons and people would dance. We no longer have those beautiful moments right now because of modernization. And those are some of the things I really miss. Those are some of the cultural aspects of my village community that I really miss. These days you can no longer, before a mother can, you can, you can comfortably go out and leave your child with your neighbor. And you're not worried that the child will not eat. You're not worried that the child will not have a place to sleep. You're not worried that the child will not take their bath or anything because that neighbor will take care of that child as though it were theirs. And these are things, these are values that are no longer practiced. Not because I don't think the village has, not because the culture itself has changed, but because we've allowed modernization to come in and destroy the very existence of our community life. And modernization is not a bad thing, but values, when you modernize values and modernize if a especially moral values. There is a problem with that for me. There is a problem. We, we no longer share in one another's problem. It becomes now a competition. If you didn't take care of my own child, I will not take care of your own child. And, and as things like that, it, it no longer brings that bonding that we used to have before. And so those are some of the things I really do miss about uh, my culture. It really does seem like a tragic loss. Like it's so yeah. amazing to hear you speak of that, of like the sense of community and caring for each other's neighbors. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. This does not exist in modern culture. It's not at just, all. Everybody's just blinkered with their own ambitions and their own projects and their own things. Yeah. But uh, it's very, very different. Yeah. In our communities, you get to know, you know, everybody. Mm-hmm. Immediately somebody is missing for, for a day. Their absence is already noticed, you know. But now, let me say in Europe, if I live, <laughs> believe you me or not, I can be here for two months and maybe my neighbor doesn't see me. It doesn't bother them at all because, I mean, it's none of their business. Yeah, that's so, it. That's yeah. the attitude. It's none of Yeah, that's the attitude. It's none yeah. of their business. Yeah, she probably went to on holiday. She's probably visiting yeah. her family. No, maybe yeah. you got kidnapped and you're murdered. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So having come from that kind of culture and traveled all over the world, really, what was it like when you came to Ireland? Did you find it integrating into the Irish culture difficult? And how did you overcome? When you come to Ireland as a student, you find integration a little bit different than somebody who fled to Ireland as a result of war, who who came as an international protection applicant or who came as a couple or who came as uh, somebody with uh, professional skills that came to uh, do a job in Ireland. Coming in as a student, I started building that community at the level, the student level. So integrating at that level was okay. Integrating at that level was okay. From that student level to now going in as an international protection applicant also brought another face altogether 
to my integration in, in the Irish community. When I was a student, they knew, oh yeah, she came to study and she will leave after her studies. And that was different. The, the level of acceptability at that point is completely different from when somebody starts seeing you as an asylum seeker in Ireland. Just, you know, I came in as a student in a, in Ireland and while I was still in uh, completing my master's uh, program, we had an ongoing conflict, which is still ongoing in my home country. East Cameroon is fighting Southern Cameroons. We are still in the middle of that conflict and there is a lot of gross human rights violation and uh, killing, systematic killings that are going on right now in back home. As a human rights student, I, I just couldn't sit back and watch all of these things and will not go out there and speak about it or call out the government against uh, these human rights violations. And I got so involved in in the liberation movement of uh, my country that I practically became a primary target. So there was no way for me to go back home. There is, I mean, if anybody that knows Cameroon knows that if you outrightly challenge the government of Cameroon, call the government of Cameroon out, you are dead or you would definitely, you would just disappear. You know, we always talk about enforced disappearance. It is well practiced in Cameroon. When you talk of torture and I mean like re-torture, persecution, it is well done in Cameroon. So there was no way I could return back home. So after that, when I completed my program, I needed to seek for international protection here in Ireland. And that is how I got into the asylum system. And when I entered that phase, it was completely, the integration became different because the community didn't see me again as Cecilia who came to study a master's program in uh, in Ireland. They started seeing me as a, as a sponge in Ireland or a resource drainer in Ireland, government resource drainer. And they started seeing me like uh, a burden to their own uh, tax system or the government. They didn't appreciate me any longer like uh, somebody that has something to offer. But the difference is uh, how you you live when you are in the asylum system or when you are in the international protection system. So with me, because I already have that spirit of working with this human right, advocating against the human right violations in my country, I needed to connect with different organizations that are protecting or promoting human rights. <coughs> Sorry. So I could speak about the current human rights situation in my country, call for international uh, intervention, uh, seek for protection for women and children that were killed every day. And, and so I just started volunteering in Ireland and that helped me to integrate differently than another person who just sat there waiting for their documents to come up. So when I started, I started volunteering with uh, frontline defenders, which we all know it's work on uh, protecting uh, human rights defenders and also uh, uh, advocating against systematic uh, human rights violations and abuses in different countries of the world. So I started volunteering with them. Amnesty International, we all also know what it does when it comes to reporting uh, human rights violations. They are all right, uh, human rights watch organizations. So I, I was just getting involved in those organizations, telling them the story of what is happening back home, seeking for them to help my people back home. and 
by that, I was also just integrating myself in the community because I get to meet people. And when they hear my story, they were so, uh, I mean, like, some really felt that there was something they could do. Some decided to join me in campaigns and all those stuff. So my integration was different from there. And then I moved to Cork. I started volunteering with the new communities partnership. I actually spent a year every day volunteering with new communities partnership. And that helped me build synergy. It helped me build connection with the links with different local authority, government bodies, uh, community, different migrant organizations in Ireland. And I, I became very involved in community life here in Cork. And that is how I met with the uh, uh, Fiona, the CEO of NAS in one of uh, uh, Ireland's uh, national action plan meetings that we had in the Cork City Council, where I spoke up because uh, I always make sure I introduce myself in any meeting I find myself. I make sure I, 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 I get myself noticed. As a matter of fact, I'll put it that way, because at times. Uh, migrants just sit, they don't talk. They just allow people to make decisions on their behalf. They just go out and grumble. They don't ask the tough questions. They don't ask, they don't, they just want to get solutions without actually finding, uh, fighting to be part of the the decision uh, making process. So that is how I met with Fiona. We had exchanges and when uh, an opportunity came up with them, <coughs> I applied and I was uh, fortunate to be part of the team and I'm still part of the team today. And that is how with the integration process has been for me. But this is completely different from other people because I hear different stories about different people that struggles to integrate. But because I came in and decided to get myself involved in the community, integration has been more, uh, it's been a little bit easier for me than any other person that just didn't, uh, has not taken my route. Yeah. I, I hope that answers the question. Absolutely. And a fantastic answer it is. Um, I was chatting with another lad who came from Brazil and he came here with absolutely no English. So he started working in restaurants, just washing, doing glasses, doing things that you really don't need to speak to customers. And yeah. every day that he went home, he would go and study English. And as soon as he had a little bit of English, like yourself, he started to volunteer. He started yeah. to get involved in the community. And that's how he started to develop and flourish and integrate in Ireland. And it's exactly yeah. like you said, so many people, they feel shy or self-conscious. Yeah. They don't go out and make a willful effort to be part of anything. So they stay isolated and it's a really terrible experience. But it's just a testament, yeah. like in your case, that if you actually make the effort, people do eventually accept you and allow you to partake in. That's society. right. Yeah. And uh, uh, at times uh, people don't just accept you because they feel that you can't offer anything. But when you challenge yourself and go out there and you do even more better than they do, then they begin to respect you. That's the thing I've noticed in Ireland because. Yes. In the communities where we work, when they see you, they see a limitation. They see you like, what can she offer? What what does what can she really give to us? But when they start talking with you and when they start, they, they see what you do, it's something that most of them don't even do. And it's something that most of them can't even do. Exactly. And then you see a different level of 
of acceptability. That is the, to be honest with you, that is the Irish nature for you. When you see them come close to you, that is because they've noticed that you really have something to offer or that you, uh, you can even challenge them in, in different topics or different uh, Things and so that is just what I have noticed with the community that I work with. When they accept you because they have come close and then they realize that you're not just a burden to them, you're somebody that can offer to the community, to the society, and then they accept you. Absolutely. But it's like you said, in order for you to be in that position to offer something back, you have to develop yourself. You yes. have to learn skills. You have to put yourself out there, which you certainly have. Yeah. I, to be honest with you, when I came to this country, I, when I did that master's program, after that, I, <clears throat> I also had an opportunity to uh, benefit from IREX uh, scholarship on human rights and equality here in Ireland. You know, the human rights uh, uh, commission, the national human rights uh, commission in Ireland. So I kept on developing myself and through that I've been able to meet with a lot of people. I've participated and spoken in a lot of uh, seminars and uh, done a lot of these things because I didn't just limit myself. I kept striving and that is not the end of my educational journey, to be honest with you. I still have goals of uh, uh, pursuing my PhD and that I would do by at all costs. I tried it before I I did. I have I had a supervisor, two supervisors that actually agreed to supervise my project and just five days to the day of submission, the last day to submit this uh, uh, <laughs> project. And this guy's just backed out. And I have been asking myself questions. Why? I mean, you supervised it to the last minute and then five days you tell me you uh, the, the methodology is not very clear to you, which is to me something that... <laughs> It's still baffling, but that notwithstanding, that has not uh, uh, stopped me and it will not discourage me to still want to do my PhD. I will still do it. So the best way is upscaling. Just keep improving yourself. Like the guy you said, he didn't have any English, but when he started, he began to get involved in the communities. And that is how we should all be able to integrate because integration is an, a two-way process. It's not just you integrating, but also the Irish community being able to accept you and you and, uh, and, and vice versa. Absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. So I have one last question for you because we're running a bit long. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for 10 hours. You're (laughs) such an interesting woman and you have such a fantastic story. I'm going to have to have you back on the podcast. (laughs) What would you say is the best advice you've ever gotten? Mm, Best advice. You know, (laughs) my best advice, you know, the little things that you do for people or the little things you say to people sometimes change their lives for the better or for the worse. My dad, <laughs> my dad was a true disciplinarian. Like uh, he was that kind of a dad that is a no nonsense father. He can beat the living hell out of you anytime. <laughs> if you do anything that is, it's not acceptable by him. 
But still, my dad was a very educated man. At that time, we had what we call standard education, the British kind of education. And he was one of the beneficiaries that had the standard six education. So he understood the importance of education, but he wasn't rich enough to sponsor us in school, you know, because he really never had a job despite that education. He never had a job in that economy. But he was always an somebody that inspires you and encourages you to never to give up your dreams or never allow the society dictates who you are. Because when you, because at times people grow up in families and they'll tell you, uh, nobody in my family has ever gone to school. So why would I even bother myself to go to school? But my father said something that, I should know that the society where we find ourselves or the world we live in now has better opportunities to offer us than it had in their days. And if I want to waste my life by sitting back and feeling sorry for myself or uh, telling myself that I want to be like any other gay in the community, then that will be my problem. I shouldn't blame my failure on the society because I have opportunities to better myself than uh, uh, to better myself and not allow myself. Uh, I, I don't, I, I just want to use his exact words. Like he said, if I want to be a failure, I should not blame it on the society as a matter of I should not blame it on the society because we have better opportunities now to better ourselves than they did in their own days. I should never allow society to determine what I should become. That is wonderfully said. And that is really, really good advice because if yeah. you want to not achieve things, there's always yeah. a million and one reasons why you can't achieve. Yeah. If you want yeah. to achieve, you can, because yeah. as you said, the opportunities today were non-existent in our parents yeah. and our grandparents' generation. Not at all. We absolutely, absolutely should embrace it. Cecilia, I want to thank you so much for spending this little bit of time and sharing part of your wonderful story with us. <laughs> and if people want to know more about you and your work and the things that you are involved with, where can they find you? Okay. Um, my active Facebook page that was really very active and vibrant with my involvement in the ongoing crisis in my country was completely disabled by Facebook. And I was completely just disabled. Oh, I no. just had to. Yeah. So uh, that is where I had most of my activism done. But I did uh, have a YouTube channel as well. It's Cecilia Binui Amabo. Uh, but I have my Twitter account that is still active, very active. And it's uh, at CB Assemble. CB Assemble. <laughs> yeah. So I also have my Instagram uh, Facebook page, uh, Instagram page, which is, uh, I don't know, I need to send that to you. It has a little yes. bit of underscores and underscores. So it's perfect because we'll put it all in the show notes and then people can click yeah, on there. Yeah. So my Twitter account and my face, my Instagram account are still very active and my YouTube channel still is I've not uploaded videos for over a year now, but I think I will start doing things on that again. That is fantastic. Cecilia, thank you again. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in and until the next journey. Ciao.